Father, this morning we want to focus on you and praise you and recognize what you've done for us and all of the inadequacies of the things that uh, we tried to do for you. And we desire that uh, we would always have a proper and a biblical perspective on how to live the Christian life and what you desire from us in response to your grace. Uh, we praise you for the surgery that Connie went through, that it went well. We desire that uh, you would restore her and continue the ministry that she has, that uh, she would be effective and that this problem would have been relieved and would free her to even do more effective ministry for you. We pray for the purchasers as well. Praise you for the, the new one that's come. We pray for that little boy's salvation early on. We also pray for the purchasers that their ministry would be enhanced and you, you would use this new circumstance in their ministry that it would not be a distraction, but in fact an enhancement of it. So we commit them to you and commit our time this morning to you, desiring that your word come alive to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Okay, this morning we're going to look at an issue that all of us have a tendency towards kind of a broader issue than the specific issue, and obviously it was a problem in the first century, a persistent problem throughout history, the broader problem, that is. The more specific problem dealt with the the nation of Israel and Jewish people. So we're going to look at the issue of circumcision, because that's what Paul looks at in uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. And we're going to see if we can perform a miracle today and get through five verses. Miracles do happen, right? So you may be witnesses to a miracle. This letter was written to the most important city of the first century. It was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was written to a group, you might say, of churches. Many of them met in homes. Probably most of them were no bigger than our class here. Some of them probably much smaller even than that. And there are a lot of archaeological remains of that ancient city. It's just one photograph of it. A little bit of the context. He's dealing with a group And I've been mentioning that in chapter 2, at the beginning, it's not clear if he shifts from Gentiles to a Jewish audience, but at least he's dealing with a self-righteous audience. And in my opinion, the primarily self-righteous audience was the Jewish people. These are the people that Jesus accused of self-righteousness and hypocrisy and that sort of thing. So in verse 1, I see the section beginning there. And he's laying out the predicament that anyone that has that attitude, whether it be in the first century or even today, and what we mean by that, in other words, trying to please God on your own efforts. That's that universal tendency that all of us have. We try to, even as believers, sometimes try to please God based on our own attendance to church or good works or whatever it may be. Well, if you're trying to do that in relationship to salvation, then that puts you in a bad position, and we can call that a predicament. 
And because he's dealing, I think, with a Jewish audience, he lays out the basis by which God will judge because they thought because of their Jewish heritage, judgment was a non-issue in their future or in their experience. So he has to lay out those principles to bring to the forefront that they are guilty before a holy God and in danger of his judgment. And we're looking at the section where he's going to bring it home and address them directly. And he mentions the Jews in verse 17. So very clearly, all of the commentators at least begin the section there, if not verse 6, and some of them all the way to verse 1. And I tend to see verse 1 as the beginning of this section. So he's going to prove to the Jews that they are guilty. He's dealt with their privileges And he's shown that they do not perform in accordance with their privileges. And we saw that from 17 to verse 24. Now he's going to deal with another area that the the Jewish people would have thought, well, maybe we are a little inconsistent, but we're sealed because of circumcision. In other words, God is obligated to us because of this ritual that we went through as young boys. So he's going to deal with that issue and show that that is not going to avail. When we complete chapter 2, chapter 3 gives us the conclusion of this section where he's going to deal with some protests. In other words, in the Jewish thinking, they're going to raise some issues dealing with what Paul has already said. We won't get there today, but we'll perhaps get there in a future time. So he's going to prove the guilt of the Jews, 17 through 29. We've seen that they have that failure of inconsistency. Yes, they have the law. They boast in it. They know it. They even, uh, in some cases, teach the Gentiles the law, but they're inconsistent with it. Therefore, they're liable for God's judgment. Now he's going to deal with their failure also in the area of circumcision because they don't have a clear biblical perspective on not only the purpose of it, significance of it, and in fact what the Bible teaches concerning it. So we're going to look at kind of the biblical teaching on circumcision in this little passage. And Paul lays out most of the principles there. He's going to issue a complaint. I'm using C's as my alliteration here. In the complaint in verse 25, so let's take a look at it. Smaller sentence, easier to understand, easier to break down. All of you are experts already approaching the status of Linda, who is probably our grammarian of the class. So most of you can probably figure out what is the independent clause in the passage. Anyone? Now the four, it's not introducing a subordinate clause like it does sometimes. I think in this case, it just simply ties it back to the prior discussion concerning their inconsistency with the law. So the four goes back, but what is the independent clause? Well, he went too far. Circumcision is of value. And then there's a semicolon, so we have two of them. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Usually if you have a semicolon, you start to think, well, maybe there's a second independent clause, and there's both of them. So, obviously, the main topic is circumcision, but he has two ideas that he's put into one 
And one, there's value to it, but there's also the opposite. In other words, there's something, there's an issue related to it. Circumcision can be lost. That's interesting. That's an odd statement. That's an odd concept. How do you lose it? And then you have a couple of dependent clauses that are conditional. If you practice the law, then it has value. If you are a transgressor of the law, then you can almost undo it, is what Paul is saying. So that's the main thrust of verse 25. So let's break it down and look at some of the parts in it. For, indeed, circumcision is of value. Now, on your outline sheet, I've got a, an outline within an outline, like sometimes I, I put in there. So we're going to focus on four things. Three of them we'll spend some time on, and then we'll look at a fourth one at the bottom of the, the sheet there. First of all, let's take a look at the importance of it. And this is related to why it was valuable amongst the nation of Israel. It was valuable even in the first century, but it was not all-encompassing, you might say. In other words, it had some significance and it has great value, but the Jews, in their thinking, had some misconceptions concerning what it was. So he has to deal with this in order to convince them that they stand guilty and therefore in need of Jesus Christ, who claimed to be their Messiah. Does that make sense? So he's dealing with this broad issue of man trying to please God by doing something, or the broad issue, grace versus works. In other words, can we do anything that puts us in a right relationship with God? And the answer to that is... Uh, No, because a holy God requires perfection, and no one can meet that standard. So any good works is not going to avail, and the main good work that the Jewish community looked to was this issue of uh, circumcision. Well, do we totally throw it out entirely? Well, there's some value to those that it has a relationship to, so let's take a look at it. So the first thing we want to look at is why it's valuable, and we need to look at why it's important. Now, we don't need to look up Genesis 17, but if you want the central passage, Genesis 17, 10 through 14, where this concept is introduced to Abraham. And Abraham, remember, is what in relationship to the nation of Israel? The father, the originator, the first Jew, you might even say, the first individual that God called to himself made promises in Genesis 12. Those promises you could look at, and I've mentioned several times, as an outline or the parameters of all of the rest of world history. Very, very significant. In fact, God is going to evaluate all of the nations based on those promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And we're seeing that worked out today. We've seen it worked out in history. We're going to see it worked out in the future. And it's not going to find even its ultimate fulfillment until the millennial kingdom. And not only are these promises that God made to Israel, but what else did God do to make it 
long-standing and you might even say official and you might even go to the extent of saying even legal, having legal standing. What did God do? Covenant. He entered into a covenant. God does not need to enter into covenant with man. A covenant is a contract. In fact, if you substitute the word contract, it's the same thing. God entered into a legally binding contract, you might say. In fact, the word is berit. Hebrew word is berit. Good name for a daughter, by the way. And I met someone at an airport, I don't remember, a few years ago, with that name. Her parents named her berit. A covenant. Covenant. And a covenant is a legally binding contract. It's not much different than your mortgage. It's not much different than the contract you might enter into when you bought a car and you wanted to borrow some money. In fact, in Malachi, it talks about the marriage as a contract or a covenant. So it's a legally binding contract, you might say. So God does not have to do that, but he does that to give not only extra assurance, but to for all of the ages that uh, people will see that God obligates himself to fulfill the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant. One of the characteristics is they have stipulations. We'll look at that in a moment. So it's an agreement. It can be between two parties, two individuals, and there's examples of that in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in Scripture. It can be between two tribes. We also see examples of that. It can be between two nations. We call that a treaty between nations, and there's examples in Scripture of that. So it's very common. In fact, it was probably common all the way to Noah, because in the Bible we have the first covenant that God makes with Noah. There's the Noahic covenant. The second one is the Abrahamic covenant. That one is entered into in Genesis chapter 15, and then when we come to chapter 17, it is reiterated, in other words, re-emphasized, because this is very, very important. All of the parameters of world history are set forth in the Abrahamic covenant. So, It specifies, in fact, another characteristic, it specifies behavior to be complied with. That's the fine print. You read your contract with the bank, you are obligated to do certain things, right? You are obligated to pay $1,121.19, right? Not 18 cents. You can't go to the bank and say, well, I'm going to interpret this a little bit more metaphorically. $1,100 and et cetera dollars is a large amount of money. So I'm going to interpret it. A large amount of money to me is $200. Okay? No. $1,100, or what did I say, 1119 and 23 cents or whatever, or 19 cents specific to the penny. You are obligated to pay that amount. The bank has obligated itself to give you a sum of money, and they do that up front, but they, there are other stipulations that manages their behavior. They can't come in 
and go to your son or your daughter or a baby and demand payment because you are parties to that covenant so they can only go to you. That's why you sign it, right? So it specifies behavior that is to be complied with. God is under no obligation to do anything for mankind. It's all by grace. God is the one that puts himself under contract and what we have been seeing in history, we can measure God has been faithfully performing that contract. Now, that's true of all of the other covenants as well, but the Abrahamic covenant, God has faithfully fulfilled throughout history. So when Germany fell as a result of persecuting the Jews, God was acting to preserve the nation of Israel because he obligated himself in the Abrahamic covenant. And that was true in every past relationship with the nation of Israel. God promised that he would bless those that bless the nation of Israel. It's one of the reasons our country has flourished. We have been a supporter of Israel from our founding. And it will be a reason for our downfall if we cease to do that. Because God will keep that Abrahamic covenant. It measures behavior to be complied with, and uh, the main party is God himself, and history demonstrates God's faithfulness. Make sense? Very important. And when you get to Genesis 17, you're going to find that uh, we have parties, well, also 15, God, Abraham, and his descendants, nation of Israel. In fact, God promises to bring about the nation of Israel. So that's the first major stipulation. There are stipulations, and the first one is that Abraham will have a descendant. It's called a seed in Genesis, in the Hebrew text. And from that, he will be the father of the nation of Israel. So it deals with a seed. And what do you have to have to have a nation? You have to have a common people. That's the descendants. You also have to have a common land. So that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a contract. In contract, you have specifics. And if you look at Genesis uh, 15, it gives the extent of the land. From the Euphrates River, you have boundaries all the way to the river of Egypt. Probably not the Nile, but it has a large extent of land. Israel has never occupied the full extent which means God in the future is in fact going to fulfill what he promised in Genesis 15. In Genesis 17, it's reiterated, but the third stipulation is this blessing aspect. In terms of nations and the nation of Israel, and in terms of the whole purpose of the nation itself, God's going to use them to bless the nations, and they have fulfilled that in partial as well. Okay? That's the Abrahamic covenant. And in chapter 17, we have a ceremony where God goes into a ceremony where he is the only party that goes through the sacrifices, indicating that this is an unconditional covenant. It's not dependent on what man does. Man has a participation, or at least the nation of Israel, And in Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 10, that passage I gave you, 
God gives a sign to show that Israel recognizes this unconditional covenant and the sign is circumcision. So throughout Israel's history, this has been the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Very, very important because this covenant is crucial not only to Israel, but to all of world history. But who are the parties? God, Abraham, and the descendants, or the nation of Israel, the sign is binding to them. So it was very important amongst the nation of Israel. It was the sign of the covenant. And in verse 25, but Paul is going to introduce a new idea here. For indeed, it has value, and it has had value ever since Abraham and ever since the instituting of the Abrahamic covenant. But it has value if you practice the law. In other words, it's simply a sign that is supposed to reflect a deeper meaning. And the deeper meaning is, from man's perspective, obedience, and in this case, to the law, because once Israel was a nation, God gave them the law and specified several things in it. And if they fail in that then uh, there are some other issues that are introduced here. But there was a problem in the first century. The Jews had this idea of circumcision. Yes, it's important, but they had distorted it and put other significance that was never there in the first place. We'll get to that. Were, were, were there any references in the Old Testament that, that speak to the fact that the circumcision had value for obedience as you're showing us that it's a sign, uh, uh, one of this, it's a sign of an agreement with the stipulation in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to some of those passages. Yes. Yeah, not because of that, but partially they flourished. Yeah, yeah, that's part of the law. Yeah, and circumcision was part of the whole thing, but those are not emphasized, and those are not. The priority. The priority is the proper understanding of that ritual, you might say, that God called upon them to enter into. But if you practice the law, that's where the value is. So it has spiritual significance. We'll get there in a moment. But there's value and importance. They were attaching too much value. So he's going to talk about the inability of circumcision, which is in that next phrase. But, so he's transitioning, he's contrasting, if you are a transgressor of the law, rather than practicing the law, then we have a problem, and let's talk about the Jewish misconception, because we need to look at the but here, and let me just give you a little background. The Jews elevated circumcision to the point that they viewed it is if they did and they were obedient to this outward ritual, then that guaranteed everything else. And that was never the intention. It was to be a sign of something inward, something internal. It was a sign of something that God had done for them and in them, and they had appropriated that. But it was not just a ritualistic work that you could perform and think that that guaranteed 
everything else. And some of the misconceptions, and I've just got some quotes there to give you the idea, they equated circumcision with salvation or regeneration. And that was never the intent. We'll see that from some other passages. Here's a Jewish writer, an ancient writer. He says, circumcision saves from hell. That's the equivalence. And I've got several other quotes and quote from uh, a Jewish encyclopedia that basically says the same, but this kind of shortens it and makes it pretty pretty clear. Just one other, another Jewish writer, Medrash Talim, says, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. In other words, salvation by the very act. I'm going to jump ahead here. What is a common ritual that people do within the church with sometimes conveying this same idea or the same misconception. Infant baptism. Infant baptism, baptism, very common. Not just amongst Catholics, but amongst a lot of Protestants as well. And the same principle applies there. It's supposed to indicate some inward action or uh, condition And it's only the outward sign. And we'll talk about that towards the end, but I wanted to bring it up because everything that we talk about here has a direct application to us in terms of rituals that we look to as well. Betty? So was that writer misquoting God? Yes. He's saying saying that God said that. He's misquoting God, yes. No, no, God never implied that. Well, then he's telling a lie. That's right. That's why I call it a misconception. Is it Acts 8 or 9 where Philip goes to Samaria, this guy Simon, who is a magician, but he wants to believe because it's so cool. Right. So he believes and he gets baptized, but then he wants to buy the Holy Spirit. Yes. So and there's the clarity that baptism is not. That's right. And there's and lots of other passages. Transforming of exactly. And we'll talk a little bit more about the significance in a moment. Betty? Well, I'm curious. Uh, Paul was Jew. Yes. And he's saying that it only has value if you practice the law. Yes. Well, is he the only Jew no. saying this? Was no. There, was there a movement? No, we'll, we'll look at Old Testament passages that tell us the significance of circumcision. No, but I mean, is he the only one? Is he the first one that, that said that? No. Okay. No. That, that it has no value? Not specifically, but it implies that. In other words, we'll look at some passages all the way back, even in the Mosaic Law. That will mm-hmm. hopefully clarify. Policy. Yes. Okay. Paul is making commentary on some of these passages, or this concept at but least. But not the only one. No, okay. no. Okay. So, uh, this is an interesting statement. Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, how do you reverse in other words, how do you unbaptize, if you're thinking in terms of baptism, how do you uncircumcise? Can't be done. But this already implies that it's not simply a physical act. All right? So let's take a look at some of these passages and answer Betty's and the rest of your questions. Law obedience. First of all, what is required? Perfection. We have a holy God. And to have a right standing before a holy God, perfection is required. I've used 
few illustrations how we can't do it. In fact, one of the purposes of the law, Paul brings this out in the book of Romans later on, the purpose of the law is to what? Is to show that we can't keep the law or uh, reveal that uh, we are sinful creatures in need of God's grace, in need of God doing something on our behalf. And when Jesus died on the cross, the New Testament is crystal clear that that is the means by which we come into a relationship, not because of anything we do, whether it be some ritual or something else, because perfection is required. And the whole sacrificial system reminded weekly and sometimes daily reminded the Jews that they were failing to keep the law because you had to atone for your sin to return to a right relationship with God. Every sacrifice implied that. I am failing because if they didn't fail, there was no need for sacrifice. There was no need for the shedding of blood. There was no need for a substitute to die on their behalf. So sacrifices were to maintain a relationship, not for salvation. And it was a reminder that God demanded perfection and observance of the law. And we have commentary on that. Let's look at Galatians 5.3. Now, this is still Paul, but we can look at James as well. Somebody look up Galatians 5.3. Somebody look up, you got Galatians, who wants to do that? Uh, once you do James 2, somebody else do James 4. What is it, 17? Who's got it? You want to do it, Linda? Okay, Galatians. Now, this is Paul's commentary in terms of what is required in terms of pleasing God, Galatians 5.3. Now, this is in a context of living the life. He's already dealt with the issue of salvation, and there's nothing that we can do to please God or to attain a right standing before God. But now, as believers, there's still nothing that we can do to please God apart from what does Galatians 5.3 tell us? And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Okay, there's perfection. Keep the whole law. That's what's required. James 2.10. Well, nobody keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it off all of it. There's perfection. You keep the whole law, but you stumble at one point, what? You're guilty of the whole law. Perfection is required. And the law just points us to the fact that we can't do it. And what is James 4.17? We've read that one recently as well. Who's got Okay. So it's not just the things that we do, but that verse tells us it's the things that we know. In other words, the good things that we know we should do and we don't do them. That really pretty much condemns everyone. Shouldn't you be witnessing to people virtually every day? Sharing the gospel with them? Shouldn't you be serving one another virtually every day? Every day we sin. And we know it. <laughs> Perfection is required. That's why grace is so important. That's why just simply trusting what God has done is adequate. Both for salvation, but also for sanctification. So that's the commentary on law obedience. And these are principles in the Old Testament. We'll, we'll see those in a moment. So verses 26 and 27, that's the complaint. 
he's already shown that they are inconsistent in keeping the law, so they should already know the Galatians 5 passage, the James 2 passage, the James 4 passage, they should know that, because James is written to a Jewish audience as well, but they should get that from the Old Testament. So now in 26 and 27, he's going to condemn them. In fact, he's going to really twist the knife by saying that the uncircumcised are going to condemn them. Paul doesn't have to do it. Let's look at that first beginning in verse 26. The circumcision of uncircumcision. So if uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, now is the Gentile able to do that? Nobody is. Nobody is. So he's speaking a little bit hypothetically. In other words, he's just kind of twisting the knife here. If there's a Gentile that can do better than you and keep the law, then what's going to happen if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law? Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as certain? In other words, from God's perspective, God's going to view him as better than you, you Jew. This really strikes home if you're with that background. Or should. He's basically slapped them in the face and said, Those despised, depraved Gentiles, if there were one of them that could live a better life than you, what does that mean? That would, that means that uh, their uncircumcision could be regarded as circumcision. So let's take a look at the next area, uh, the spiritual significance of circumcision. First of all, It's not intended for salvation. In Genesis 17, is Abraham saved in Genesis 17 when God issued circumcision from the very beginning? Well, what does it say in 15? And I think 15, when it talks about, in fact, Paul's going to quote Genesis 15, what does he quote? Verse 6. Abraham, what does he do? Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account, you could say, as righteousness. God declared him righteous, not because of anything that he did, but because of what? He believed what God had said. In other words, it's by faith and faith alone. So he's talking to a man that knows the Lord and has communicated it to his family So it is after salvation. It's not the basis of it. The Jews got it turned around and got it out of place. So it's not intended for salvation. He's dealing with a group that are already saved. And the nation of Israel, the assumption is as a corporate group, these are the people of God. And the assumption is that these are people that are regenerate. Okay? So it implies that regeneration precedes it. So it's not for salvation. It's a physical act with a spiritual point. And again, the analogy could be baptism. Baptism is what? It's an outward act. And what's the spiritual point? The the new birth coming in Christ. It's telling the world that something has happened inwardly and this act is a visible display of what Mary Lee just said. In other words, it's an outward act that illustrates that I have died to myself 
by trusting in Jesus Christ, and now by coming out of the water, I am alive to him. And I want to live my life with that relationship. That's baptism. So an infant can't do that. So you have to have regeneration, and that was true of circumcision as well. So it's a sign of regeneration. Let's look up Deuteronomy 10.16. Somebody want to do that one? In fact, let me put all the verses here. Deuteronomy 10.16, who's got it? You got it, Craig? And somebody, in the meantime, look up Leviticus. Linda, why don't you get that one? And Craig, once you do 10, skip to chapter 30. Right, ready? Yeah, go ahead and do 10.16. And in the meantime, also, somebody look up Ezekiel 44. Let's get all of them so we can go through them quickly. All right, Jeremy's got the Ezekiel one. First of all, a sign of regeneration, Deuteronomy 10.16. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Okay, pretty clear. This is Deuteronomy. This is even before they're a nation. This is the children of Israel in the wilderness. They are simply a people. There are people that have their constitution, but they're lacking a third element that makes them a nation. What's the third element? They're not in the land. So they're a common people. They have a common constitution, the law, but they're preparing to enter into the land. So they're not a full-fledged nation yet. It's not till the conquest. And what is he saying? Early on, he's interpreting the meaning of circumcision. It's not an outward act. It's what? It's an inward regenerating act. In other words, there's an inward act that must precede the outward. It's just a sign of the inward act or the inward state. Circumcised heart. So this is in in Deuteronomy. This is Moses. You could almost call it a sign of uh, a reassigned allegiance. Yes. If you come into our country and you want citizenship, you stand up and you forswear any alliance, allegiance, anything to your previous country. And you you swear that you will uphold our country for laws, for people, for the good, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So when you have this, it's kind of a standing and declaring that I forswear, I renounce and give up all these other ways. And now I make... Yeah, it's an inward... Well, reality is probably yeah, a better word. Mm-hmm. It's regeneration. So it's a sign. The external is simply a sign of inward regeneration. And he's commanding them to be circumcised in their hearts. And what it is, it's a cutting away from the old life. Just like it's a physical cutting away of flesh, it's a cutting away or it's a moving away from the old way of living, just as... Mary Lee has noted. Now, God prophesies. Now, Leviticus is written and given to Israel even before they went into the wilderness. And in Leviticus 26, 41, he's predicting the rest of their history. And a lot of that history has been fulfilled. In other words, it's worked itself out. And he's talking about later stages when he's calling them as a people to return after they have been scattered. Who's got Deuteronomy 26? Linda, verse 41. I also was actually against them to bring them... To bring them, now in the context, bring them back to Israel. 
They had gone into idolatry, and in the future, he's going to bring them back, and that is yet even future from our time. Keep reading. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes, so that they then make a... I was also acting with hostility against to bring them into the land of Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so that they then make amends for their iniquity, black, then I will remember my actor Jacob. It's like in the middle of it. You don't get it. I don't get it because it's in the middle of it. Do you get it? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> He's basically, it's a prophetic statement dealing with a regenerating of the nation of Israel, but they're in a state of an uncircumcised heart, even though physically, probably most of them are in fact physically circumcised. But they're in the same state that Paul is talking about in Romans, circumcised externally, but uncircumcised spiritually. And he's going to restore them. So it's a promise. And then Deuteronomy 30 is another passage is also prophetic. This is even before they're a nation. God is laying out their history. Who's got it? Got it. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. That's regeneration. That's future. That's New Covenant, all the way into Deuteronomy. Now, it's not as clear in Deuteronomy that it's New Covenant, but later on, when you get to Ezekiel, and we're talking about the New Covenant, and the prophets, like Jeremiah as well, it will be fulfilled even in the future of Israel, where they will be regenerated. That's part of the New Covenant. Got it? Who's got Ezekiel? Uh, go ahead. No foreigner, Circumcision of the heart. See that? It's a spiritual reality. The external is just a sign. And in fact, in those passages, it indicates that you can have the external sign without the inward reality. And then that's uncircumcision of the circumcision. When he's referring to them as Jewish people, sometimes that's the way that word is used. Let's look at some New Testament passages that kind of correlate with that same idea. Galatians 6.15, who's got, wants to do it? Somebody get Colossians. Jeremy, why don't you do Galatians? You were going to do the other one and somebody stole it from you. <laughs> you want to do uh, Colossians 2.11 and 12? And who's want to do the other one? I'll do that. Okay. Mary Lee, Philippians 3.3. 3. So Galatians 6.15? Mm-hmm. Galatians 6.15. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creed. Okay, now that's relating to the body of Christ. But in terms of a Jewish person that is trusted in Messiah, it's insignificant. Alright? Galatians 6.15. Now Colossians 2, 11 and 12. You got that one, Douglas? Read it loud. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting out of the sinful nature. Not see, the, see the significance there? The putting off of the sinful nature, inward reality. Keep reading. Uh, not with circumcision done by hands of men. Not the external act. But with circumcision done by Christ. Okay, inward by God himself. See that? Philippians 3.3. 3. Yes, that says... <laughs> For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence no confidence in the flesh. Now in that context, he's speaking about believers, Christians. 
And New American Standard Act actually even says the true circumcision. So there's a spiritual reality behind the external act. And the nation of Israel in the first century and throughout a lot of their history misinterpreted that whole concept that they missed even from Deuteronomy. So that passage that Ernie just read is a huge paradigm shift for Jews. Yes. It's a massive... All of these passages, yeah. exactly. And so this is probably one of the big barriers for a Jew embracing Christ, is that this is completely turning their world upside down. Turning it upside down. In other words, making the Gentile more acceptable than the Jew in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. And... Let's just read it, and our time is up. 27, as a result, if there be any Gentile that could keep the law, or in fact be regenerated, and that's going to be the point of the rest of the book of Romans later on, then what is that Gentile going to do? That's verse 27. And he who is physically uncircumcised, that's Gentile, If he keeps the law, now that's hypothetical. In other words, if he were able to do it, will he not judge you? And we have the same word, krino, that we had before. God judging. But here in this case, even those despised Gentiles, he's really twisting the knife now. If he keeps the law, will not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. So they are condemning the Jew. This is why he is proving to them that they need a Messiah or the Messiah. Let's stop there and we'll pick up there when we get back. Who wants to close first? We didn't perform our miracle, but miracles may come another day. Closing thought, rituals have value. In other words, there's value in... Communion, there's value in baptism, but not for salvation. He's got it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing your truth, your word, Lord, for your word's life, your word is true. Lord, equip us with your Holy Spirit, and we keep your word in our heart and in our mind, that we will be able to be witnesses for your kingdom. Lord, keep us safe and travel this weekend. Any people are traveling and going to be with their families, I pray God that you keep them safe, that you provide health and peace and guidance. Wherever we go, Lord, that the lights of the kingdom of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.